Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation episode. This is our opportunity to talk about something big that is happening, zero in on it, and relate it to some of the big picture themes we talk about in other places on the podcast and the newsletter. David, nothing bigger than Layer 2s at the moment. And in the Layer 2 scene, nothing bigger right now than the launch of Arbitrum on Friday. Our guests are going to talk about the launch of Arbitrum. They are from Arbitrum. David, any thoughts on what we're going to cover today? The launch of Arbitrum and optimistic rollups is kind of one of those ground-shaking events in the world of crypto, right? Um, and and basically because there has been so much just, uh, regardless of Ethereum, the concept of L2s is being proven out here, right? L2s are a technologically independent piece of technology that can be on any blockchain that can support it. And now it just happens to be coming to Ethereum. So the fact that we have uh, blockchain independent, blockchain agnostic code that is kind of the, the original thesis or uh, vision of what how blockchains can scale is now arriving in this cryptocurrency industry. It's also happening to arrive on Ethereum. And so uh, Arbitrum is, is, has launched its developer mainnet uh, last Friday. Uh, and it's just, it's just a big deal. Uh, and so I'm really happy to get into this conversation as to why this is such a big deal and what this means for the future of, of Ethereum and crypto at large. Yeah, we're going to go through the task of explaining what Arbitrum is and the context here is we've called for Layer 2 Summer. I think mm -hmm. it's coming. Layer 2 is actually here on Ethereum, and this is Ethereum's scalability path, so super important. Dave, let's get to some announcements really quick. We are looking for an editor of the Bankless newsletter, somebody to help us write, somebody to edit articles, somebody to take ownership of that. If that is you, we will include a link to a job description in the show notes bankless editor position, really excited to uh, to see some applications. Um, David, we also released a podcast with Eric Wall on Monday. Do you want to give a quick preview of that? Yeah, I've always wanted to get into a, a conversation with Eric Wall. So really happy that, that we actually got him on. Eric Wall is what we have called a, a lone wolf contrarian in the world of crypto, has his own opinions, has his own mental models, uh, and isn't afraid to have sharp corners about you know his just disagreements with other people. Uh, Eric Wall talked about, uh, we actually went down a, a rabbit hole that I didn't expect, which is the concept of like blockchain and crypto economic systems as organizations. So that was really interesting. Uh, and then also his conflict with the Bitcoin maximalists and, and how he and he also had conversations about optimistic roll or thoughts about optimistic rollups back in 2019. Very bullish. 2020. Very bullish. Very bullish. So a really just overall well-rounded conversation touching on a number of different things that I think can let you know how to think for yourself and how to think independently in this space. We also have a DeFi uh, panel coming next Tuesday, I, I, next Wednesday, rather, I believe. And this is like almost a, I, wanna, I don't want to say a makeup panel, but apparently, David, and I haven't seen it yet. The video is not public released. Mm -hmm. I just missed it. I was doing other things. But you did a DeFi panel at Coindesk Consensus. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, it was a little controversial. <laughs> um, and, uh, you, you know, you want kind of a, a redo. So give us some context on our DeFi, DeFi panel next Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a panel at Consensus that I was part of on Thursday called uh, DeFi, Do we need, Who Needs Banks Anyways? Uh, the Current State of Decentralized Financial Technology. And uh, there was this uh, a, a guy who's like uh, part of a Bitcoin. Uh, who, he's a, it works on the Lightning Network for Bitcoin. And he self described what his project was as a neo crypto a neo bank that runs on top of bitcoin and it's quite literally the opposite of what in my opinion the ethos of defi is so it was it was very to me it was very much oil and water is like why are you bringing a crypto banker onto a defi panel so 
who else is, is, is best suited to actually do it? The world's best DeFi panel ever. And that's what we're doing. Uh, and so that's next, uh, not this coming Wednesday, next Wednesday. We got Vance Spencer, uh, Spencer Noon, and, uh, and also Santiago from Parify Capital. Literally, I don't think there could be a better DeFi panel out there. So really excited to really get to the crux of, do we actually need banks anyways? Is that what you're going to call it? Why do we need banks anyway? Because I feel like that's every single episode of Bankless ever <laughs> that we've ever produced. Is well, why would we change a good thing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> why do we need banks anyway next Wednesday, guys? Tune into that. Also, want to let you guys know that Kyber has released something super cool, particularly for liquidity providers. So this is something they call a dynamic market maker. I'm going to show mm -hmm. you what this looks like really quick. Uh, if I can, but basically providing a dynamic way to adjust volatility and get liquidity providers the best possible fees. I really love this riff on uh, market making in DeFi. Of course, Uniswap V3 has its has its own version, its own riff. Uh, but you should definitely check this out because what it adjusts is it it sort of adjusts the the levers mm -hmm. for liquidity provider in real time based on pricing. So if there's additional volatility, there's ways to increase the fees. And the Kyber dynamic market maker will increase fees during periods of high volatility. So what's the net benefit of this? If you're a liquidity provider, more fees. Mm -hmm. That's what liquidity mm -hmm. providers want after all. The other cool thing they're doing, the reason they wanted us to share this with the bankless community is uh, they're actually doing some yield farming coming up. Mm. I've heard people DVD. like that. That's soon. <laughs> yeah. So yield farming for the KNC token, uh, mm -hmm. kind of cool. We don't have information about that today, but what I recommend you guys do is check out becoming a liquidity provider on the new Kyber DMM. We'll include a link in the show notes. You can also go to uh, bankless.cc slash Kyber and check that out. Just test it out um, and uh, see what you think and get ready for the uh, the liquidity program coming up. Mm -hmm. Kyber's one That's of the oldest say. liquidity pools and oldest DeFi teams in oh, Ethereum, geez, right? They, they, were, oh, they were DeFi before, before we had it. Was it called DeFi. Before it was called DeFi, right? And so yeah. uh, always optimistic to see what happens when, when Kyber uh, you know, does something new and, and, and cool. And they kind of have that. That is kind of the benefit of Kyber is a, a lot more um, expressive than, than what like a... Well, now, now all these apps are, applications are becoming really, really expressive these days. Like what is Uniswap V3 other than a more expressive Uniswap? But, you know, every yeah. single application, Kyber included, becoming more expressive. I just, I like the model of optimizing for liquidity providers because mm -hmm. liquidity really is the product yep. for these automated market makers. It seems to be what they're doing. All right, David, mm -hmm. we're going to get to it in a minute, but I'm going to ask you the question I ask before every state of the nation, which is this, what is the state of the nation today, sir? Oh, this one's a good one. So for those that read the uh, Market Monday piece uh, yesterday, which you totally should, really great context for uh, this conversation that we're getting into right now, we are speculating. The state of the nation is speculating. And we are specifically gold speculators. We are moving, going out west, California gold rush time. We are speculating for gold. Uh, and th there's a number of conversations uh, and questions I have for the Arbitrum team here in a second about what it's, what is it like when just a bunch of new real estate gets unlocked out of Ethereum all at once, which we already like are speculating that is going to be in really high demand. Uh, and so what happens when like a bunch of DeFi teams Teams really want to claim some real estate from themselves uh you know speculating <laughs> nice speculating on like what happens next uh and and i think if you have been paying attention to the bankless program we have been speculating as to a DeFi summer 2.0 layer 2 edition uh and uh I, and we have some questions for the uh, arbitrum team about how this is going to work oh dude this totally feels like new property new real estate has just opened up new land mm -hmm. to explore 
has mm-hmm. just opened up. That's what these layer twos are. And there's are. gold and out I, there. I, there's gold out there. Mm-hmm. That's one analogy. The other analogy, which I like, which is also from the Market Monday piece, is mm-hmm. like, think of this as a, a theme park. Mm-hmm. You know, think of you ever been to Disneyland, Disney World? Uh, you go in and there's kind of the, the Main Street Disney opening. Well, each of these layer twos are almost like sub parks within the mm-hmm. wider theme park that is Ethereum, right? And they're all kind of coming soon. So some of them are open, Polygon's open, not quite a layer two, it's a side chain, we'll get into that. But like on the theme, there's product market fit, people loving Polygon, mm-hmm. a lot of traffic being driven there. Now, what does Arbitrum uh, do? Mm-hmm. It's uh, It's been under construction mm-hmm. up to this point. And now we're at the point where it's, it's going live in mainnet, which means developers have access to it and they're getting the park ready for DeFi users. That's the theme here, super exciting. I like that one, David. Yeah, Going the, west. The bankless graphic designers just like killing it right now. <laughs> is this you? Did you <laughs> this do this? Is me. This is me. Uh, this well 10 done, seconds sir. in Photoshop. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love the theme park theme. All right, guys, we're going to get back to our guests in just a minute. So stick around. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this bankless episode possible. Synthetics is Ethereum's decentralized derivatives liquidity protocol. What does that mean? Synthetics is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets, which are assets that are priced via an oracle rather than bids or asks. Traders can use the Quenta exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetics. Traders on Quenta can trade synthetic tokens like SBTC, SOIL, or SDFI. Because Quenta is powered by Synthetics, traders experience zero slippage on their trades. No, I didn't mean low slippage, I meant no slippage, because that is the power of the Synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths, which are synthetic assets that move inversely to their target asset. Synthetics isn't just for traders, developers can build on Synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets, or investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. If you're a developer or you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to www.synthetics.io where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from Synthetics. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. All right, guys, we are back. Uh, super excited about this. Arbitrum just launched to mainnet and we have the perfect people to tell us what is going on, what is happening. We have uh, Steven 
Goldfeder is the co-founder, chief executive officer at Offchain Labs. This is the company behind the technology of Arbitrum. He holds a PhD from Princeton. We also have uh, Harry Kladner, who is also a co-founder. He's the CTO at Offchain Labs. He leads all of their engineering, also attended Princeton. Guys, welcome to Bankless. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us. Super excited to be here. You know, Thank you. Where we want to start here is you guys shipped like you made it. It's mainnet now. Super exciting. Um, you know, with with so many of these layer twos being pushed back over the years, right? Like dates pushed back, and like there's been quite frankly, for people who've been in this space for a while, particularly in Ethereum, there's been a lot of disappointment with with layer twos, right? It was like. When's Raiden coming? Do you guys remember this? 2016, 2017? Oh, State absolutely. channels are going to scale <laughs> Ethereum, right? And then it was like, no, that's not the thing. Plasma is the thing, right? And they're like, okay, we'll do, we'll investigate that. And now it's like, no, that's not the thing. Rollups are the thing. But it's taken so long for us to get to a mainnet solution. Now you guys are here. You made it to mainnet. How does it feel? It feels, I mean, it feels awesome. Obviously, it feels really, really good. And we've been working for, for quite quite a long time. You know, you speak about these other solutions. I remember when we were forming the company in like 2018, and we've been working it for years before that, uh, we were raising funds and people would say, hey, uh, are you uh, State Channels or are you Plasma? I'm like, nah. <laughs> like, oh, you're State Channels? So eventually we just ran with it. We call ourselves State Channels. I'm like, all yeah. right, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it feels really awesome. And it feels like, you know, despite how long we've been in it, it's like, this is the beginning. Like Friday was the beginning and like, uh, you know, not the finish line by any means. Like we just started and we're doing it. And now it's like, you know, bringing the savings to the users and, and the L2 experience. That's hot. Harry, how are you feeling? Pretty damn good. I mean, it, it's, 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 I'm really happy that we had a test net for a long time. Yes. We, we felt like we, we really cared about like really having the tech out there and having users using it and like developing experience, running the test net, like getting developer feedback. Like we did that for a long time. Since October, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I think Stephen, October. Yeah. yeah so I, I think that's the reason why we're feeling pretty good right now. Cause like we, we, you know, we, we, we put in the time before we got here. <laughs> that's and the reason why we're both here and rather than fighting fires is because you start, you started in October really. <laughs> oh yeah, there were lots of fires we fought since October, but the good news is you fight those on testnet and you, you get angry users on Discord and yeah. but you don't actually, you know, that's that's the time where you where you want to learn what's wrong with the system and and get future requests and you know, um at this point, you know, we're obviously open to lots of users, but it was really the early users that their future requests got in and they helped us really turn the product into what it is today. All right, guys. So we're going to spend just a, a minute or two talking about what was actually launched. So we're going to get into the why, like what is Arbitrum in a little bit, a bigger picture. But I think uh, since the, this launch event, you guys managed to launch on Friday, I think folks want to understand what was actually launched. I'll just provide some context for Bankless listeners. You guys are all familiar. You've heard David and I talk about layer twos. Uh, the difference between a sidechain and a layer two is basically this. A layer two is secured by the layer one, in this case, secured by Ethereum. The economic security guarantees uh, transfer over to the layer two. So this is a pure layer two solution. That's one distinction. Also, the, the second is that it is EVM compatible, close to it. So all of the cool DeFi apps that we know and love on mainnet can be transferred to Arbitrum. But let's talk about what exactly was released to mainnet on uh, Friday, because I know it's not like the, the theme park's not completely open. DeFi users can't access it. It's mostly a developer launch. Uh, let's start with you, Steven. What was launched on Friday? 
Yeah, so I guess on Friday, we uh, sort of opened the theme park, um, but, there, but there are no rides yet. So we opened the theme park and we brought in the builders and said, hey, uh, come on and like launch the rides. Uh, the thing is, you know, when we put out our announcement uh, maybe two and a half, three weeks ago now that we were going to do this on, on Friday, uh, I expected maybe 20 projects to want access to it. And we had now growing over 300 projects, uh, you know, have applied for access at this point. So uh, we couldn't exactly, you know, we, we, it took us a bit of operational time to let everyone in and we're still rolling, rolling, uh, allowing people in. Um, um, and, but yeah, so we, I would say we opened up the theme park, people are, are, are building the rides and, you know, when those rides are ready, we'll, we'll let in the people, um, let in the users. So it's, it's right now it's a developer only launch. Is that correct? Yeah. Right now it's a developer only launch. It's a, it's a wide developer launch and we're doing a fair launch. What that means is so operationally it's taking us a few days to roll out to everyone. You know, we're doing things like we're seeding people's wallets for them. And, you know, it just, there's just some operational, uh, uh overhead with every, everyone you bring on board at this point. But what we're guaranteeing users is that, that even the last person to be onboarded, assuming that they applied before we launched and they, they filled out that form in time, will have enough time so that no one no one will, will have access to users before anyone else. So everyone will have time to build. Everyone will have you know at least a few weeks to build, and then we'll let users in, and they'll get to choose which ride they want to run to, but there won't be some that have this advantage. <laughs> and I think there's a really important through line to talk about why you guys are doing that, uh, because it's part of the ethos of Ethereum to not make like a kingmaker, right? Um, and so you guys don't want to like allow like sushi swap and Ave to get in before like Uniswap and Compound, right? There's this is supposed to be some sort of like fair launch type of mechanism by not giving any specific party some privileged access to this new real estate, right? And so when you guys are launching Ar uh, Arbitrum, the the way that listeners should should really like mentally model this in their head is like you guys are like cutting the cutting using the scissors to cut the the red like you know we're open now but there's just empty land, right? And so like all these users, like people like me who can't code, like Arbitrum isn't really interesting to me right now. I need to wait for developers and, you know, DeFi app makers to build the cool stuff, right? And so I'm still, as a user, I'm kind of still sitting on my hands waiting for like whoever, whichever developer uh, development team can move the fastest and start to build out the rides and attractions, right? And also important on, to keep this metaphor going, the rides and attractions that all these DeFi apps are going to, to build, those are going to be like, you know, users going to have to pay fees to use those, right? Like you use SushiSwap, you pay the fee, uh, you know, you use Aave, you use Compound, you pay the fees. So that's the incentive for all these uh, DeFi apps to build really as, as fast as possible because there's so much demand to use these new rides, these new attractions, because they have very like low, the, the, all the scalability that we've always been asking for since like the beginning, beginning of time. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to just like put that mental model into people's heads about why the credible neutrality of a fair launch uh, that you guys did with with, uh, with your your guys with, with a fair launch uh, with Ar Arbitrum is really really important, right? Because we don't want we want everyone to have equal access to like all of this new real estate, um, and so. Uh, maybe you guys can illustrate like to what degree, like how, when you guys opened up Arbitrum, like, and I'm assuming we're, we're talking about like floodgates opening, how many like development teams are there? Like who's chomping at the bit to get in here? Like what's that, that all that activity like? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, uh, basically the mental model is projects will execute their business models, just like they're doing on Ethereum on Arbitrum, but they'll have significant advantages, but we're not going to be given those advantages. So if you're a project that's winning on Ethereum uh, layer one, you'll hope you may you'll, you'll likely win on Ethereum layer two, but it's not because we're giving you priority access. You know the, the, the little guys are having the same access, and if they can outpace you on layer two, 
then 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 it'll be it'll be theirs to win. Um, yeah, basically, um, uh, it's really uh, you know I, I don't want to steal the thunder from 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 teams that want to do their announcements and want quiet, but like a lot of teams have announced already. So obviously, Uniswap, Sushi Swap are, are well known. Um, uh, as are as are a bunch of other uh, of others. Uh, you know, the Ave team has been pretty vocal as as well. And really down down the line, uh, you know, lots and lots and lots of teams building on us. And um, yeah, we had like I said about 300 teams request access, inclu including some like individual developers that are again that are working on projects in their in their garage, and that's okay. Some of these teams will some of these developers, depending on when they fill out the form, they'll get access before before the before the, before the, the largest teams. But they'll all be on the same footing. They'll all have time so to build before before the park gate, gates open. So do uh, yeah, it will take through the uh, you know I would say through we're working on it now. Uh, it will take into this week, but all those teams will be onboarded this week. So um, uh, every, unless all teams that will get access, meaning there are some users that try to like get in there to ape in early and we're like, hold up, just, uh, you know, hang on. Um, but everyone that, you know, all the legitimate teams uh, will will get access this week uh, or either have access or will, will get access this week. Okay. So these are the ride builders. They get access. They start building the rides. I'll also let add uh, some infrastructure projects I've noticed have joined uh, Chainlink for one, uh, also Etherscan, Block Explorers. So we're not only talking about DeFi apps, uh, we're also talking about infrastructure, but Harry, could you give us a sense of like, um, so, so again, like a, a question about layer two is, you know, even layer twos that have launched in the past, the problem is it's taken so long to get actual apps live on them. If I am a Uniswap or an Aave, I've got some EVM code. It's written in Solidity, right? What? How do I get it into Arbitrum, and how long is that going to take? Because the question is like, when is the park going to actually open for DeFi users? I think we're trying to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, I think the the teams that started deploying on on Friday are already, I think, basically done. Um, and like, wait, 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 what? I mean, it's not like open, but the contracts are up there. I think there are a lot of like internal UIs that are that are up on top of them. There's not much to do, which is like the really cool thing of EVM compatibility is like I you know, like the the conversation with like these teams has basically been like you know, and this is I'll say like there are some projects that need special features. There's additional testing to do. So right now, what I'm talking about is like the core like. Is you know can you do the can you do the basic interaction or the contracts on chain? Can you do swaps? Can you do that? Um, yeah, like we we asked for addresses, we whitelisted them, and you know we 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 funded them with some initial ETH because the we hadn't enabled bridging of ETH publicly yet, and then they messaged back and said we're deployed, <laughs> and that was kind of it. Okay, now, these that are is teams high. that had been on our test net, so they had gotten kind okay. of some experience, but I think that. Um, I think that they didn't, I don't think the major, I don't think kind of either between Uniswap and SushiSwap, I think basically required no code changes, some tiny changes to the front end, but basically very little to do. Um, so when you guys say EVM compatibility, you really mean it. Yeah. You know, there are some small, there are some edge cases, but they're edge cases you have to look for. Um, so the vast majority of, of, of dApps are, are not really going to hit any of those. Um, and it's also like, it's, it's any version of Solidity, it, it's Viper or Fay, like it's kind of any of the tooling basically that works on Ethereum um, is, is kind of gonna, is, is working on Arbitrum as well. And, and you know, the, the initial wave of dApps are mostly kind of ones that don't have a lot of interdependencies. And so for instance, kind of like some people are gonna be blocked for some amount of time on like Ching, on like, you know, Chainlink getting up and running fully. 
Um, so there are kind of in part of the kind of coordination effort of, of this period of time is kind of like making sure that like we have this like crazy network graph of like who depends on who mapped out and can like make sure to make the connections the right way and and got all of that working so like the things that are easy to do are the ones that don't sort of that are kind of the base layer of, of the DeFi ecosystem and the tooling ecosystem and then we're basically going to build our way up from there but at least at each level it's just kind of making sure that everybody knows the right addresses for everybody else everybody's talking to the right people the actual effort is is pretty low and i think you know anybody who's who's deployed on our, our test net would agree and anybody who's gotten the opportunity to deploy on our main net so far would also agree i think so i think this does a fantastic job illustrating why people have been so excited about optimistic rollups right just because you can copy and paste your code on on mainchain ethereum put it on the optimistic rollups Maybe it works right off the bat. Maybe you do some checks, make sure everything's running. But like most likely scenario is that it is going to work as a copy and paste, except for the the, uh, the dependencies that you guys just talked about. Yeah, it's it's um, it, it makes our lives a lot easier because uh, there are a lot of teams that we're coordinating with, and if each one mm -hmm. required like a ton of time, right? <laughs> what would you say? So we in on the main chain Ethereum, we have this very like I would say like hardened structure that has just gotten used to like Aave's used to MakerDAO being there, MakerDAO is used to you know uh, to Uniswap being there. Everything has gotten used to Chainlink being there with all of these dependencies and, and money Legos that you guys need to recreate on on uh, Arbitrum, what would you say is like the tallest obstacles that you guys are really trying to overcome to really allow that DeFi money Lego ecosystem to flourish as we've seen it uh, flourish on the main chain? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, things really just started coalescing when we announced that we're launching. Like until then, you know, we, we, we've been, uh, you know, we're a small team. We have a dedicated business lead and, and myself have been like, you know, talking with teams for months and months and, and even longer. And, um, but it's sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of a snowball, right? So teams, team, I know there, there's this dependency graph and you have talk to teams, Hey, I really, I really want to come, but I can't come till they're there. I need a DEX. I need a lending platform. I need this specific, uh, and then sort of once, uh, teams start announcing there's a snowball effect. So I think at this point, uh, you know, that's really, um, uh, behind us, it's really just uh, getting the teams access, which we're doing and allowing them to deploy. And I, I think we're really just going to wake up one day when we turn on and, and, and basically everyone's going to be there. Um, which is like, I didn't expect that a few weeks ago, but that's just sort of how, how, where we are today. So understanding the trajectory that you guys have seen thus far, like how fast do you think this whole like user experience is going to come? Like, when can I, when can I put money into Aave on Arbitrum or any other lending protocol? Like, does it, do you think it's coming faster than you guys originally expected it? Um, yeah. So I don't have an exact date to commit to yet, but you know, from our, from our, from our, Things are going are relatively fast. Like Harry said, there are without naming teams or teams that that uh, said, "Hey, I need you know this much time. You know, I need a little longer to test things." And and you know, these are teams that you know, uh, you know, you know that other teams depend on. Like we like like we said, we need our oracles up before, and we need many price feeds up before uh, before you know users can use those. And that's just an example, uh, right? There are lots of dependencies. So building up the dependency graph, uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's as slow as the as the as the slowest player uh, for very important ones, but. We're not going to wait for everyone, right? So we're going to wait for the. Uh, yeah, we're going to give everyone enough reasonable time and uh, wait until the you know the big infrastructure pieces are in place. So um, I, I would really look, I think, mostly to to the teams building on us for for that information. It, well, we're coordinating with them, but we're not we're not really calling calling the shots on that anymore. Um, you know, my hope is obviously sooner sooner than later, um, and I think we'll be relatively you know relatively soon. But um, 
Uh, the first thing that, that we're doing is, you know, we're going to give everyone enough time to deploy. So that's something we're guaranteeing, but that, that's a matter of weeks. And then certain teams are going to need a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I think, um, I think we'll be pretty, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, I, I'm pr still pretty confident that we'll be the first live layer two with, with apps on it because, you know, the process is unfolding and this is a process that everyone's going to need to go through, right. um, you know, if, if they launch in this way. So you guys have just like opened Pandora's box and now you guys are just like, eh, the ball's in your court, DeFi developers, <laughs> like you guys go figure it out. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. And, uh, you know, obviously we're doing like a, a, a large coordination effort, you know, putting people in touch with other, with other people. Uh, putting different projects in touch. And so we're, we're obviously manning that coordination coordination effort, but fundamentally um, a lot of the balls are not in our court anymore. That's super cool. Super exciting. All right. I want to put, uh, because a lot of DeFi users obviously listen to this. We're all, we're all in, 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 um, the process of going bankless and becoming more bankless. I want to get a sense from you guys of what the park is going to look like uh, when it's open. So a lot of people who listen to bankless, they've of course have experience with Ethereum main chain. So that's one model of operation. Like you have MetaMask and you can use hardware wallets and you have Etherscan and these are the tools that you use and you have the, the, the DeFi apps that you're familiar with. Uh, some have also gone to other sub theme parks, right? I think like, um, Polygon is maybe one example of this. So this is not a pure layer two, this is a side chain. But what's cool when you travel from Ethereum to, to Polygon, you walk across the bridge as it were, is all of the tools that used on Ethereum mainnet and a lot of the user X experiences, the UX experiences, like it's the same. So it translates over. So you just get to use your, your Ethereum Disneyland tools in this new uh, sub world. Um, can you talk about maybe the similarities and the and the differences with maybe an Arbitrum and a, a Polygon? So first of all, we talked about the DeFi apps. So I can imagine a, a, a Uniswap or a SushiSwap is waiting for us over there, maybe an Aave. And then I think there's compatibility with like MetaMask and maybe hardware wallets. And is there also like a bridge? So with Polygon, you have to, you have to actually go across the bridge. Can you talk about that? Maybe, uh, Stephen, you start. Sure. Yeah, I think um, it's it's a very similar experience um, from the users. And um, uh, and first thing I'll say is, you know, I have tremendous respect for the for the Polygon team. You know, they're really killing it now with adoption, and you know, only good things to say to say about them. Uh, but I'll speak about some of the differences and some of the similarities. So the similarities are the experiences. We'll have a bridge. Um, we're an optimistic rollup, so we derive our security uh, from Ethereum. Um, so um, when you escrow your contracts in the bridge, uh, when you escrow your funds in the, in the, in the bridge, they show up on the L2 and, uh, but they're again there, and then you can move them from the L2 to the layer one. Uh, we have this withdrawal period because we're an optimistic rollup, but fundamentally you can go back and forth over our bridge and all the tooling will just work. Like we're bytecode compatible. Th that's what I like to say. So there was sort of this, you know, people um, have this, oh, a, you, you know, a side chains have the Ethereum experience because they just use Geth. L2s are much more complicated. The thing, the, the thing about Arbitrum that I think is unique is they give you the experience of a sidechain because we accept EVM bytecode directly. All the tooling works, and but we give you the the security of um, of 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 a, of a layer two, right? The security of, of Ethereum. And you know, I think that's I guess that's our our differentiate differentiator. Um, but fundamentally, yeah, the experience is the same. You go over the bridge. And your funds just work, you know. And there's protocol level bridge. There will be faster bridges. We have a uh, a relationship with OKX. A deal with OKX. They'll be enabling fast deposits and withdrawals directly onto the Arbitrum chain. So wait, I want to pause right there. So we're talking about uh, fiat going directly from a crypto bank, crypto exchange fiat directly to Arbitrum as well as another way to get into the theme park. You don't have to go through the Ethereum front door main chain. You'd use the side door 
from the traditional world and bridge that way. Exactly right, which I think is, is, is super critical. And, you know, one of the things people don't like so much about optimistic rollups is the delay period to get to get back. And you have projects like that are that are building bridges to Ethereum to solve that, like Connect and Hop and Seller. And you also have projects like, and you also have these these like OKX uh, relationships uh, and these OKX collaborations that will also uh, make that point pretty moot. So I think the user experience is going to be pretty excellent, and and uh, you know that limitation will be like a a small a small detail that doesn't actually ever show up to users. And by the Hot. way, there are other I'll tease that there are. OKX is the first, but uh, there are others that are coming quite, quite soon. Hey, Gemini, if Gemini, you're listening, Coinbase, if you're listening, uh, really excited, guys. We've The reason we're so excited is because Dave and I have been talking about this for so long, and we've kind of like said that this stuff, this sort of thing was going to happen, and now here it's happening. Since the beginning Harry, of wanna... Bankless, we've been talking yeah. about like, how <laughs> yes. this is going to be coming here. <laughs> it's here. Layer 2 Summer is here. All right, Harry, I want to get to maybe some differences. So Stephen was talking about some of the similarities we've got here, right? So like a similar experience, so maybe something like a sidechain like Polygon. Uh, but let's talk about the differences because there are a couple of I picked up on. I want you to validate whether this is true and then talk about some others. So one is if you're on a sidechain like Polygon, right? You're, uh, there are still fees, transaction fees, but those are denominated in the Polygon token, Matic. I think with Arbitrum, they're denominated in Ether, but there are still transaction fees. Yet, also, I think with, with Arbitrum, uh, users should expect those transaction fees to also be higher because you are paying for a, a portion of Ethereum's economic security. Uh, maybe let's start with, with that. Is that a, a difference that um, you'd say is accurate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good description. So, I mean, essentially, there's kind of two main categories of, of, of fee that you pay on Arbitrum. Now, it's, it's kind of to the end user, there's just a single fee, but essentially it goes, goes to two different places. Um, the first is paying for L1 fees. Every Arbitrum transaction gets posted as data to Ethereum. And that's essentially the way that we that rollups achieve the high level of security that they do is by kind of still heavily leaning on Ethereum, um, but essentially kind of using it to, um, using it in order to kind of come to agreement about what's going on in the chain, uh, but in a much, much cheaper way um, than you would be doing if you were interacting with a traditional smart contract. Because essentially, we're only agreeing on the input data. We're not agreeing on the outputs. Um, and Arbitrum and, and the optimistic protocol, uh, roll-up protocol is what kind of brings us all to agreement over the outputs. And so that was a little. Um, and yeah, so essentially you, we have- Can you quantify that for us, Harry? So like how much of a gas fee reduction is that? How much compression are we do, able to do here? Right, yeah. Um, so I think that kind of roughly speaking, um, simple transactions, um, well, transactions with a relatively low amount of call data. So they could do a lot of execution, but with a relatively low amount of call data um, are currently coming in. I'm going to give a wide range because I don't remember the exact latest numbers. Somewhere between kind of 1,000 and 2,500 gas, um, L1 gas for kind of like the L1 cost of kind of just posting the call data. Um, and, and so that's kind of like the, and, and that's kind of one factor where sort of there's this trade-off um, with, with kind of systems like uh, commit chain systems, like um, side chain systems, like, um, like poly, like Matic uh, on Polygon, um, where essentially kind of, they don't require data for each transaction. They just post kind of very short summaries with the trade-off being that Ethereum can't actually validate whether or not what's going on in the side chain is correct it's instead kind of independently secured. And so essentially what you'll see is this kind of trade-off where there's a higher level of security, 
but also higher, but also higher fees in relation in, in, that you are paying in order to get that level of security. And so kind of we end up on this spectrum where you have kind of Ethereum as the most secure and the most expensive, Arbitrum as close close to as secure, almost as secure and and less expensive, but still, you know, not not completely free. And then Paul and then Matic, the Matic chain as kind of significantly cheaper, but with its kind of own independent security mechanism that kind of doesn't have the same kind of confidence levels of theory here. Love it. Okay. So that's the one source of fees is basically the cost to secure a subset of, of data on Ethereum. And we're talking like a 90, 95% reduction versus doing this on gas reduction versus doing this on Ethereum main chain, something in, yeah. in that magnitude, in that order. What is, you said yeah. there were two sources of fees though. What's the second? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's even more than 95%, I'll say. I'm, I'm not going to remember exactly, like it depends a little bit on the transaction, but it's like a crazy amount. Um, and the other source of fees is basically L2 computation and state. So essentially the same reason why Ethereum needs to needs to charge fees also applies to Arbitrum. Um, that you need to make sure there's kind of not an infinite supply of capacity on the chain because we still have nodes that need to be able to run user transactions. Um, we can we can have more capacity and we will have and we will have more capacity than Ethereum, but there are still limits to it. Um, and so they're kind of and there's still kind of people who need to actually run those transactions. And so kind of there's two sort of major um, kind of reasons why there are kind of there are fees in L2. One of which is in order to actually kind of support the the costs of the chain um, and the cost of upkeep. And including kind of the cost of state growth, because state growth is something that we think a lot about, just like is kind of a, a serious issue that that's kind of thought a lot about in the context of Ethereum. And I think that kind of the solutions that Ethereum is is looking at are also kind of very similar to the solutions that Arbitrum will pursue over time. Um, and the other is essentially a it, it kind of the Arbitrum chain with its own um, gas market um, that kind of once enough demand for Arbitrum has come up. Um, there's kind of a, a mechanism that was very heavily inspired by um, by EIP fifteen fifty nine um, that we'll be using on Arbitrum in order to kind of when there is so much demand, which I think we're pretty confident at this point is going to happen, to kind of even fill up all of the supply on Arbitrum. If transactions were free, um, the the prices, the kind of L two fee portion will kick in, and I think kind of still be significantly less than the L one fees, but it'll be there. Okay. In other words. If the if we didn't have fees on L two, the users would never get off the ride, right? right. So you'd have yeah. <laughs> bad scenario. That's what a, that's what a, I guess a spam simple attack is. Mm -hmm. Users not getting off the ride. Okay, so like in both of these fees are denominated in ETH. Is that correct? Yes, and okay. both of them are kind of it's a single it's a single fee that the user sees in MetaMask. Uh, right, there's right, one right. fee. Yep. In our block explorer, there'll be a breakdown where you actually see like well, this is the total fee paid, and these are the different kind of places it went. And is it correct? So I know the the fee to settle something on uh, Ethereum in a rollup that obviously goes to Ethereum miners, validators in the future. But the the fee that is Arbitrum specific does that go to validators within Arbitrum, or who gets that fee? Yeah. So uh, fundamentally, um, yeah, that fee is gone is going to pay. Um, we have this notion of invited validators. We can't because of like civil tax, like you said, uh, the current economic model doesn't allow us to just like say, okay, you pay everyone, uh, you know, uh, this fee because, um, because, um, 
yeah, then there's just not enough to, to pay people for their for their costs. So validation, um, you know, right now we're 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 whitelisting the developer period. Validation once we open up will be permissionless. Uh, anyone can validate, and there will be um, users uh, validators that we onboard to uh, basically uh, that, that we as invited validators that can also have, uh, you know share fees and 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 and. and Get some of that fee revenue, as well as you know we're we're also operating the sequencer and, and we'll be taking some of that some of the fee revenue for us as well. But fundamentally, that's where that's where it goes. It goes really into the operation of, of the system. And you know over time, you know our goal is to move more. Right now, it's kind of bespoke. Uh, you know we we have these uh, we we're going to be working with validators. Over time, our goal is to move more and more of this on chain, so validators get paid directly on chain and the fee revenue. Um, uh, you know, gets uh, mostly hand right now. It's sort of going through us, but like uh, the goal is uh, to move as much of that on chain as we can. So, um, layer two operators, um, layer two development is something that you know we think should be funded, but it should become you know directly on chain, and you know exactly where that's going. So, with Ethereum, the way that we meter resource consumption is we constrain block space, and then with EIP one five five nine, the way that we uh, meter resource consumption is by just increasing fees to make uh, resource consumption come down. You guys said that you guys have a, a mechanism heavily inspired by EIP one five five nine, but what is the actual resource that needs to be metered? Is it is it uh, just data and the state of Arbitrum? And then how how is that different from Ethereum? And and also, can you guys like kind of measure out how much more resources that we have available on our on Arbitrum, which is basically a roundabout way of asking how much more scale do we have? Yeah. So in terms of kind of like the, the first part of the question um, for, for kind of what are the resources? So we, we have kind of a, um, a slightly different system than Ethereum, although it's kind of very similar, which is kind of there are two different resources uh, on Arbitrum that are kind of both paid in gas, mm -hmm. one of which is state growth, the other of which is computation. Um, when kind of like designing the system and sort of figuring out like how to best sort of control its growth, for instance, kind of computation can be kind of can remain relatively cheap for, for kind of long term because computation doesn't make the system any more expensive to run a year from now. Whereas state is something that I think we're kind of, you know, there's significantly more concern about because this has kind of been a problem for quite a while on Ethereum. And it's something that kind of Arbitrum operates within a similar model of. Um, and so sort of separating out those two quantities to be kind of thought of as pretty distinct gives us sort of the freedom to, for instance, weigh kind of way different, like ha have different weights to like how expensive we want to make state growth versus how expensive we want to make computation. And I think that kind of part of the kind of system over time will be sort of adjusting these in order to kind of find the, the most sustainable long-term path for the system. Um, because kind of most of the concerns with sort of ramping up and kind of increasing the capacity is basically this question of how hard are we comfortable with making it be to run a node. Um, and, and there's kind of this interesting feature of rollups, which is that we need way fewer nodes um, because we don't need 51% honest nodes. We need one honest node, mm -hmm. but we want to make be sure that people who don't want to trust the current people running nodes can run their own. So, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I just wanted to, to get this in my brain and also listeners' brains, is that the reason why uh, Arbitrum is scaling Ethereum is, is, is twofold. One you just said, which is that you need a, a lower number of uh, you know, honest active participants in that number of solo that is just one. And we can, because of that, because we only need one honest participant, then we can scale a pretty decent amount. And the other reason is because we are actually using the power of cryptography, we are able to just compress 
more transactions into smaller little packets. That's what a rollup is. Uh, and that just takes up less space on Ethereum. Did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of like, there's, there's these interesting kind of two different questions. There's like how much load rollups put themselves put mm -hmm. on Ethereum and how much load that rollups can handle in L2. Ah. And so on Ethereum, there's this kind of like currently like by rough measure, Ethereum can support somewhere around like 4,500 transactions per second through all rollups. Um, and so kind of like that's because that's the amount of like that's how much call data we can put. That's how many transactions we can actually post the data of. And then there's the separate question, which is what will kind of a single individual rollup, um, what kind of capacity will it have? Um, and, and that's kind of an area where we're, we're kind of I think it's going to ramp up over time. I think we're kind of going to be relatively cautious at the beginning and then sort of as as demand grows, also grow capacity um, in order to kind of make sure that the that the system is as long term kind of safe and sustainable as possible. I'd rather have kind of the system be a little congested for a short period of time until we kind of increase the capacity than be wildly off base and allow the state to grow a huge amount. And then it becomes impossible to run nodes. And so we're kind of we're, we're going to be we're going we're being cautious about this. But I think that kind of as we adjust up the capacity, um, we're going to kind of keep ahead of demand for for some amount of time. This kind of opens up to be like, what is the eventual future look like? Sort of question, which is a really interesting one, which is one kind of that I've talked about a lot, which is that like five years from now, there's not going to just be one rollup. Even if, and I don't think this will necessarily be the case, but even if kind of Arbitrum is the rollup tech, there will eventually end up being multiple Arbitrum chains. Because one cool thing that are, that are, that rollups let you do is they let you parallelize. So a single Arbitrum rollup is very similar to a single Ethereum, whereas multiple Arbitrum rollups are very similar to sharding. Sharding is hard. We haven't figured it out for ETH 2.0 yet exactly. That's still open research. And so kind of this is like the direction things are heading in rather than the direction they're going to be anytime soon. But that's the way that we reach kind of a billion users rather than kind of where we're going to be at for the next kind of period of time where we're still sort of just figuring out the process of having one roll-up chain that's really solid and a really good user experience. This is also the reason you guys called this thing Arbitrum 1. So the technology is Arbitrum, but we're talking about the the land that's been opened is Arbitrum one. There could be an Arbitrum two. There could be an Arbitrum three. There could be a bankless Arbitrum. All use the same tech. Who knows? Absolutely. And so, like the decision to kind of start with one is really the decision around like multiple chains being way too confusing. <laughs> the technology <laughs> is ready for it, but the coordination challenge is not. Sure. I think what's really interesting and what the listeners should take away is that you guys are facing some of the same core battles that Ethereum has been facing, right? Like state state growth and, and resource consumption. You guys are just dealing with this in a, as I, in my mind, like a microcosm, right? You guys have slightly different parameters as to like how you guys have to deal with this issue. Ethereum has 51% attacks to deal with. You guys don't have to deal with 51% attacks. You guys just have one honest validator as like your consensus protocol. And and that's kind of where these differences come in. But it's the same problems through and through. And the through line that listeners should really take away from is that let 
Ethereum tackle the 51% or proof of stake consensus issues, that's hard. Uh, there's a reason why like a native currency of Ether is, is uh, important for those systems. Arbitrum doesn't have to fight that fight. It has to fight similar fights, but the main fight of just like 51% uh, native currency consensus is taken care of. And that lets you guys focus on what you guys' core competency is. And that's where a lot of the scale comes. So a decent amount of Arbitrum scale comes from the fact that Ether is securing Ethereum under a proof of work and a proof of stake network. And you guys just don't have to deal with that already. And you guys are kind of riding on those, riding in the wake of Ethereum and its super strong settlement guarantees. So I want to throw that out there. Exactly. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. <laughs> so we're we're off to talking about the differences we talked about the similarities and th that was all a discussion about like uh, actually gas fees which brought us there so it, the difference between something like polygon and arbitrum is that if i'm in arbitrum i can expect to pay a bit more in terms of gas for these additional security and settlement guarantees right um let's talk about another difference which i think is the case withdrawal period there's been a lot of talk about a withdrawal period in optimistic rollups. Uh, a one-week withdrawal period has been floated. And the way I'm envisioning this in my head is like, so once you cross the bridge, I send my ETH or my tokens over the bridge. Like, we know how that works. And I'm now in this, this other sub-theme park, right? If I want to get back, it's going to take a week to get back. Now, maybe I can exit via... Uh, OKX, Gemini, Coinbase, like in some sort of the, the side door that we were talking about earlier. But if I want to go back to the Ethereum main chain, there is a delay period that something like a Polygon doesn't have. Can you talk about that? And maybe Stephen, uh, give us your take on this withdrawal period. Yeah. So, so one thing to say is, you know, the reason we have it is because we have a protocol level, level bridge that gives you the security of Ethereum, right? We can build an escrow type bridge in Arbitrum 2 that has no delay, but then that you don't get the security of the rollup. So it's fundamental to the security of this bridge. It's not that we can't build a fast bridge. It's just that you know you won't have the security, right? We could build a multi-sig bridge, for example, to, to Arbitrum uh, that's fast both ways. It's just if you want the security of Ethereum, uh, you have to use this bridge. And, and the reason why you have this delay is because optimistic rollups rely on fraud-proof technology, and you have to give everyone the ability to uh, basically post fraud proofs, right? So uh, the, the, case, the, the failure case here is I say, hey, Look, this withdrawal is valid. I'm taking all my money to uh, to Ethereum, and it's invalid. And someone knows that's invalid, but the period is so short that they can't get they can't get the you know the the uh, multi round process on chain. So that's why the, um, this period exists. But the thing I want to focus on is two things. Number one is um, as the ecosystem on Arbitrum becomes much more and more and more vibrant, um, there are going to be users that just want to stay there. So this I'm not saying this is not an issue. I'm not saying users won't, won't want to go back back to Ethereum. Or won't want to go across rollup, but uh, there are a lot of users that are just going to stay and park their money in Arbitrum because that's where the cheaper DeFi is going to be, and and lots of them, you know most of the big DeFi projects are going to be there. So um, this is again, this becomes less of a problem over time. And the other thing is, like I, said, I alluded to before, um, this is the protocol level bridge. Your application layer bridges like Connect, uh, Hop, um, Seller, SeaBridge, and, and and a bunch of others in this space as well um, that are that are that are um, basically using liquidity. Um, what's called um, liquidity exits to to get around this issue. And the, the core idea here is uh, you have an ETH on Ethereum. I have an ETH on Arbitrum. I could put mine over the bridge. That will take me a week. Or I could, we could just swap our assets quickly. So you get my ETH. I get your ETH. I just got a quick exit. And yeah, I'll pay you a small fee for that. And, and a lot of people are building out technology along these lines, which means at the end of the day, uh, to users, um, 
to users, this, this won't come up at all. And, and, and a typical user might just want to, you know, just again, go on and off via OKX too. So that's another path, right? I'm on Ethereum. I want to get an Arbitrum. I'll go via OKX. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's such a nuanced, um, a much more nuanced take of how it's eventually going to evolve because there's not just one bridge over to Arbitrum. Like there is one protocol supported bridge that is secured by the Ethereum military, right? The most secure bridge that's never going to go down, right? But we also have all of these other bridges. Then, you know, some of them might pay, like there might be a toll to use it if you want to get there fast, you know, uh, others like, but but it would be much shorter. There's also going to be like sideways to get into Arbitrum too, directly from the fiat world, traditional finance and exchange. So in your mind, I mean, I know a lot of people are talking about this, like, oh, the withdrawal period, it's like a long, arduous process, but it feels like it's not going to impede UX. It's there in case we need it, right? But um, there will be all of these other ways to get liquidity in and out of Arbitrum that don't like require that bridge. Is that the case? Yeah, that, that's exactly the case. Yeah, it's the combination of that, that um, there are lots of really, really smart teams building application level layer solutions that just get you in and out quickly. And, and the fact that I think that, yeah, you know, it's, it's a really great park we're building and users are going to want to take it for a long time. <laughs> what, other, what other drawbacks are we missing, guys? So gas fees, there's, it's a bit more expensive than a side chain. There's this withdrawal period for the primary economic security. Are there any other drawbacks? I think those are the, you know, the, 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 the main drawback. I, no. I don't even view gas fees as the drawback because any system that tells you they don't have gas fees, no, it, it can't work, right? If gas, you know, some uh, metering, some fees are fundamental to a system just to, uh, you know, uh, resource control and resource allocation. So I think the main the main drawback is the is the delay period that we have. Um, but again, I think you know, really smart teams are working on this. The, the one thing I'll mention, um, you know, just to to, to round this out, uh, the, the the one place where the all these solutions that I mentioned don't work for uh, withdrawing our NFTs. So if you want to withdraw an NFT, you're actually going to have to wait for wait for it to go over the bridge. Um, generally, you don't necessarily need such fast liquidity over your NFTs. Like you keep your NFTs there. Maybe you want to move them to Ethereum, but it's not like, uh, part, you know, it's generally people don't need to do, you know, I think the, the delay is not going to be that much of an issue considering what NFTs are used for. But that is something that, you know, I should mention, which all these solutions are really, really focused on fungible assets. I guess the, the, other, the other thing that could be mentioned here, which, you know, is, is depends on how you, depending on how you think about it, is, you know, is a, I think it's a short term downside, long term doesn't matter is essentially kind of complexity. All rollups are, are significantly more complicated than, than side chains. Uh, like this is just kind of what, what they're trying to do is more complicated. This is, this is why we, wanted, we were on testnet for a long time because like that, that's what it took in order to, I could, I could launch a, a kind of simple side chain tomorrow with a couple hours if I wanted to. Um, like kind of like the that tech is just sort of like simple enough and kind of been built long ago enough that sort of with things like Tendermint, it's it's like really easy. Um, rollups are you know are as as kind of a, a pure L two are are doing something kind of much more interesting and much more complicated. And so like you know it's like this is the reason why kind of we we've taken a long time to build on testnet. Why we're kind of like going to be sort of like. Grad, kind of gradually decentralizing the system more and more until it reaches kind of its final fully decentralized form. Um, and, and that's kind of like, you know, it's, it's a necessary, it's a necessary journey to go through basically in order to kind of really hit the, uh, the kind of full promise of L2. 
Guy, Harry, guys, do you Harry, think that uh, in the future, deploying an optimistic roll-up chain will be as easy as what you just described a side chain to be? Um. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Sick. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I, we got to we got to break for sponsors, Harry. But it's mm -hmm. like one quick question on that. So, where is the complexity? And give us like the really short. Like, is it in this fraud-proof game? Is that where the complexity is with optimistic rollups? And basically optimistic rollups and ZK rollups. The the complexity is in like how you're actually proving to Ethereum that that what you're doing off chain is actually correct. For ZK ah. rollups, it's it's like fancy cryptography. For optimistic rollups, it's fraud proofs. That's like this magic thing that like all of the rollups have to have to do in their own way. Um, that kind of you know is is where sort of like the added like it, the added complexity is compared to side chains. All right, guys. Um, and I think that Arbitrum like has like a pretty good form of this. That the, the, what where the complexity kind of is controlled is mostly in the node, and I think is kind of like in a pretty good place where we can get where we can be pretty confident in it. All right, guys. So if uh, any of the Bankless listeners have uh, read my uh, my Market Monday piece yesterday, it was all a, a speculative uh, version of the future about a possible DeFi summer round two, where all these DeFi apps come to these L2s and they start liquidity mining incentives to really uh, entice users to come to their DeFi app. So that is the conversation that is coming next in the State of the Nation. But first, before we get there, we have to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. 
You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. All right, guys, we are back. We are here with Stephen and Harry. We're talking all about Arbitrum. That was a, a fire first part of this. Guys, we are going to get into layer two season, whether you think that is happening. But first, I want to run this analogy by you. Because so I was listening to the uh, Zero Knowledge podcast. I think you were on that, Stephen, with maybe yeah. Ed, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's fantastic podcast. But by, by the way, Bankless listeners, if you want to hear the history of Arbitrum, some of the more technical details, go hit up that podcast. We'll try to get it included in the show notes. Um, but I was also thinking, like, all right, how do we make this thing easy to understand if you don't know much about blockchains? and cryptography and like the terms that we throw around like layer two and rollups and optimistic stuff and validators and all of these things. So I want to see if this, this analogy kind of lands with you. So we, we've often talked on Bankless about uh, Ethereum being almost like a, uh, a digital nation of sorts. So the analogy is it provides defense, it has a currency, it has an economy. Like what is defense? That is the economic security of ETH as an asset, right? That is the crypto economic security that backs the entire system. Has a military, miners, validators in the military, has a tax system. You know, you consume blocks, you get charged a tax, gases. It has a Supreme Court. It's the court of law, Ethereum. Code is law, right? It, it has to compile somewhere. It has to be code on mainnet. That is the Supreme Court of Ethereum. So, Ethereum mainnet, as I know we said it was a theme park, but it's also almost like a digital nation state, right? And where I see roll-up chains going with Arbitrum is Arbitrum is almost like an economic zone like that uses that nation state to provide its economic security. So it's not completely independent. I almost think of it as, you know, sort of the, the U.S. If you think of the U.S. has a federal government and then it has the state-run economic zone, the states don't need to have their own military force. They, they don't like, they don't, we, I, I live in Virginia. We don't have a military in Virginia. We rely on the fed for that. Um, but it does have a court system, right? And so I think Arbitrum does and optimistic rollups do have like a court system, but if there is a dispute in the economic zone, in the state uh, court system in kind of the state run circuit courts, then what happens is that eventually gets all of the way to the, the federal court system. And that happens at kind of the nation state level. If we're talking about a, a, a nation, a crypto nation, right? So with, with Arbitrum, that happens in Ethereum. So Arbitrum as this um, economic zone doesn't have to bootstrap its own security because it gets that from its parent nation state, but it is connected to um, the Ethereum nation state as this. And here's the cool thing. Like, so we know how courts of law work on, you know, circuit court in, in state court. But I think with Arbitrum, what you guys are saying, this is a gleaning from the previous podcast, is all it takes is one validator, one defense witness to say, hey, here's our evidence in the circuit court, right? Um, this code, like somebody cheated here. There was some fraud detected here. The code didn't run as it should have. And that just gets escalated if that happens. That gets escalated to the nation state Supreme Court on Ethereum and then the, the court just decides on Ethereum, like whether that's true or not, right? Anyway, it was a helpful analogy for me to try to understand this. I don't know if it works, if you guys like resonate with this, but it was my way of explaining how, how, how Arbitrum and Ethereum are linked 
and how these systems work without using like uh, cryptography words that people don't understand. How's it land, Stephen? I think it's great. I really do. I like it. I may actually start using it, to be honest. Uh, um, I'll credit you. Don't worry. Um, but um, actually, it's funny because one thing this, this you know reminds me of is the Arbitrum name. So Arbitrum uh, actually this dates back to the days where Ed was in the project and I, before, he, before I was back in you know early 2014 days. And Arbitrum it comes from like Latin for like arbitration. And, and this is what the idea, right? So you have these sort of economic zones that sort of set up their own rules. And they basically do this arbitration that you don't really need to fall back to the federal and the state, you know, the, the larger systems, but they're there. And the reason they, and the reason this works is because you know they're there because it can fall back to that and because you have that enforcement um, if you need to. So yeah, I think that, 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 that that's exactly right. And, um, and, and you can have many of these zones that all rely on the, on, the, on the same federal military and the same federal Supreme Court resources, and it can scale out this way. And, um, and, and whether that's many Arbitrum chains or whether that's um, other rollups as well, uh, we can all basically use those shared resources and, and set up our zones, our own zones, which will be able to scale uh, in ways that uh, one larger uh, operation sort of just wouldn't be able to do. So I think it's really awesome. Uh, I don't know, Harry, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I mean, my, my only worry is about word overloading. Like now we're talking about economic zones, but then there's also like Cosmos has their notion of zones. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, we're all, we're all trying to come to consensus about the right like ways to to use these words in this space, and 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 so at some point we kind of just have to make a mess of it all to to really figure it and to settle things out. I'm reminded of He's our podcast blocker. that we did with uh, Joel Minegro, where we talked about how like you know the consensus inside of the United States when I swipe my uh, my credit card to get my morning coffee. Ultimately, the reason why that works is because there's F-35 jets, you know, somewhere that will enforce me to do the right things no matter what. Uh, and at the end of the day, like proof of stake Ethereum with staking Ether is actually way more efficient than F-35 jets. And ultimately, that's what Arbitrum comes to be settled by is proof of stake Ethereum with Ether, the asset. Uh, and so um, and also the, uh, importantly, like if, if there is a dispute about my coffee transaction that goes all the way to the su Supreme Court, thinks. Oh, think, my God, I think, hope not, David. Think about like how many just like months Your order's and too months complicated. <laughs> think about how many like just months and like jury members and lawyers and litigation and think about uh, how expensive. crazy expensive that is in both dollar terms and time terms versus a settlement of a dispute on Arbitrum, which it can happen in theory, like atomically because of the power of cryptography. We are moving into a much more efficient, much more powerful world that is no longer secured by, you know, guns and militaries and rather just proof of stake Ethereum. Absolutely. I totally agree there. I also have another quick uh, question for you. Like with that, that metaphor, one uh, interesting design of the Arbitrum, which I didn't realize until you guys had the announcement post, is that you're actually planning to use the currency of the federal government, as it were, Ether, uh, within your system, which is kind of like federal versus state. Why that decision, right? So why, why adopt uh, Ether as the, the reserve currency of this economic zone? I think the, the basic answer is the, the, our goal all along was, and you know, it's taken us a long time to figure out what this means and how we get there. But our goal all along is to reduce friction, not add friction. And fundamentally, if you're a roll-up, you get your security from Ethereum, which means you're posting transactions on Ethereum, right? For every transaction on the roll-up, there is something denominated in ETH because that's that's the currency of, of Ethereum. So if we were to introduce our own uh, currency here to pay those fees. We basically just need an oracle for ETH because that's the real, that's really what's happening underneath the hood. There's also the L2 fees, which we can dominate natively in, in a different currency. But fundamentally, um, it's that. And also, like, you, users want to use a system 
Do they really want to get hold of another coin that could be volatile to use a system? Absolutely not. And and one of the things, you know, uh, trust me, there were many, many people along the way. You know, we when we start, we started Arbitrum before 2017, so we went through all the cycles. There were many people along the way um, when we tried to raise, fund, raise funds uh, early on, uh, you know, for our seed round. There were people that were trying to get us to do different things. And, you know, I'm happy we, we really stayed uh, stayed where we are because I think today that's one of our major advantages, the fact that we can be ETH native and you don't have to. You're a user that has ETH. You're a user that loves ETH. You, you, that's what, that you have the tools you need. Uh, whether you're a developer or whether you're a user, you have the tools you need to use Arbitrum. And, yeah, and we believe, uh, you know, fundamentally, and then that's, you know, obviously ETH is, ETH is volatile enough. We don't need to introduce another uh, new asset here that users have to have um, to sort of interact with our system. I think that would be... A, pretty bad for UX and it's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do. We were always UX first, um, you know, everything else second. Was the design destination always Ethereum as a, as a layer uh, one? So definitely not because as you know, if you mentioned the ZK podcast, as we mentioned, Ar Arbitrum predates, uh, you can look on YouTube for the first uh, Arbitrum video and it wasn't me. I was in that class and also doing a different project than Threshold DCPSA, uh, which I did some work on back during my PhD. Um, but this was at leading this project and uh, this predated Ethereum um, uh, being live. So this was, you know, the videos from early 2015, it was a, it was a 2014 class and, and, you know, these ideas have been percolating in Ed's head for, 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 for years before that. So uh, Ethereum wasn't a thing and it took us time to really, to really, you know, watch Ethereum grow and understand, Hey, this is the ecosystem where everyone is, where all the mindshare is, where, you know, and this is where we want to be. And this is the thing, the, the experience we want to improve. Um, you know, again, like we, we were raising funds initially, you know, right after the 2017 hype, the, the best and easiest thing we would, we could should have done back then was IC, ICO, but I guarantee you we wouldn't be here today if we did that. So um, no, definitely it took us a, lot, a while to understand that like we wanted to build an L2. I mean, we've been doing this for years, for years at this point. That's but. the crazy thing is like, it feels at some level, I think to some people that Arbitrum just came out of nowhere, but like really you guys <laughs> have been skating to where you thought the puck was going this entire time. It just happened that like we got to roll-ups, right? You were doing roll-ups before it's called roll-ups. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, and one, yeah, absolutely. We, we've been in this rel relatively early and, and I'll also say, you know, credit to all the, the other great teams building out there. Uh, the competition brings ideas and, you know, it refines our ideas. So our ideas have definitely refined over time and, and, you know, other, you know, the, really the community, the Ethereum community as a whole, uh, take out, take down the competition for a second, because we're all working towards the same goal. The Ethereum community has a goal has basically gotten to, you know, the design goals we want, as you mentioned, we've gotten past the like initial scaling solutions and understand this is what we want. And I think we've been pretty close to that all along. We've definitely refined our vision and uh, understood the, for example, the importance of EVM compatibility, like 100%. That's something which we understood, you know, it took us a few more years to, under to understand. And we've definitely been skating along for a while. Uh, I think, yeah, a lot of people probably didn't hear about us till, till, till quite recently, but we've been, uh, you know, building, uh, building, you know, this is one of the benefits of, you know, I've seen this in Ed, Ed is, you know, a, a 27 year Princeton professor, he's not now full time in the company, but this is, and I've seen, you know, I've had the ability to interact with many such types. And one of their, one of the things that these people have is the ability to see the future basically, and to realize what's going to be hot. And, you know, Ed really, um, has, has been very visionary in this. And I, I credit him for a lot of, of seeing and scaling way early on as, as an issue. 
So you guys have uh, read my my DeFi L2 summer post, and I've already been citing it a bunch of times so far in this podcast. But now I want to uh, go in and attack this question directly. Uh, we already we've already heard that like there are a ton of uh, DeFi apps that are trying to like move into Arbitrum because it's it's theorized by these DeFi apps that the real estate that Arbitrum offers is really really valuable because of the low fees and scale, right? And so all these DeFi apps are like rushing rushing out the gate to start building their attractions. Their attractions are going to charge fees towards the DeFi apps. That's why they want to be there because they are assuming that all of these users are also about to become following the DeFi apps. Uh, and so my theory about this this summer, and maybe it's longer than the summer, maybe it goes into the fall, but like the whole DeFi summer round two or L2 summer round two is kind of an attractive meme. We like memes of bankless. So I want to get your guys' take on this. Uh, do you think that there's going to be like a rush towards extreme, Not maybe not extreme, but like awesome liquidity mining incentives by DeFi apps because you know SushiSwap is really aggressive with their integrations and they like to build, 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 build. And they also like to do liquidity mining. Aave is doing the same thing, like same sort of like ethos, like build really fast, incentivize with liquidity. Uh, are, do you guys think that we're like on the cusp of like an L2 DeFi summer? Hmm? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I totally think we are and, and, and to, Without leaking any specifics, I'll tell you I'm aware of, of of a number of teams that are planning on doing liquidity mining directly on Arbitrum. And again, these are teams that are going to introduce uh, new tokens um, that are Arbitrum native. And these are also teams that are you know ha have live ecosystems and already have lots of experience here, and they want to bring uh, usage to Arbitrum because again, it really comes down to the economics for the teams, and that's what's going to make the system work. If they believe that there is a, a better market for them in Arbitrum, and 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 they'll be they'll be well served by being on Arbitrum as opposed to some other ecosystem, um, they're going to attract users there. So uh, yeah, I can't spell any of the details today, but other than to say is uh, I have. Yeah, we have knowledge of, of, of lots of liquidity mining programs that will uh, come online uh, once Arbitrum opens up to users. Um, you know, what you mentioned the summer, the fall, I think the, the big question here is, and the one which I know we discussed before, but um, still some uncertainty about is exactly when we open up to users. Um, you know, I don't, uh, uh, but I think uh, once we open up, these, these liquidity mining programs are gonna be ready, are gonna be ready from day one. And um, we're gonna see a rush of liquidity. There's just also a lot of excitement about it, which is, you know, there's, even forgetting about these, 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 like, you know, obviously this helps and we'll, and we'll bring a lot of users, but there's just so much excitement. You know, we get pinged from people all the time that just want to put, put liquidity into Arbitrum. It's like, first let's put it in then I'll figure out what I'm doing with it and why it's there. So um, yeah, I think there's going to be a, a, a gold rush. <laughs> so like 10 projects with liquidity mining, 12, 15, like what's the, what's the ballpark number that, that we were talking about? So, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm aware of a handful, um, I, I, I'm sure there are more, mm -hmm. but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm personally aware, aware, aware right. of, of, of a handful. Yeah. Cause they don't even have to tell you if they're going to do it or not. Right. Like maybe, maybe they've have told you, but like they could do it without telling you regardless because that's what it is. Yeah. These are like matter of fact conversations. I'm on the phone with the team. It's like, Hey, by the way, um, you should know, uh, uh, thanks for giving us access because we plan on driving lots of, uh, of users to, to uh, users to Arbitrum. And then they, they, you know, this is not something we ask. This is not something that they have to tell us. This is just, you know, some, you know, we speak with teams all the time and, and, and we, you know, some teams have, have, to, have told us this. And of course, we're not going to say today who those teams are because we don't want to break anyone's confidence, but we're talking to enough teams. The anonymity set is large enough that I'm comfortable saying that you'll see You'll see at least, at least a few of these and, and likely more. There's, there's one super interesting kind of thing to throw in here, which is that there's kind of like two reasons you might want to do liquidity mining kind of in this way. One of which is to bring users from Ethereum to Arbitrum. The other of which is to have the users who are coming to Arbitrum 
come to your come to your DAP over your over your competitors. And so I think that like oh I think the users are coming. I think there's gonna be a lot of kind of like where who who becomes who becomes dominant in, in the new L2 landscape. And I think there's kind of gonna be a lot of fighting over that. So I think a lot of kind of the reason for for doing all of these new programs is kind of fighting for for dominance kind of in in this L2 landscape where people are gonna be. What do you think about that that fight for dominance? Is it going to be about like the protocol design of the individual L2 or like optimistic rollup? Or do you think it's more about this uh, coordination game that you said well, was particularly difficult? How do we get all of these uh, uh, you know protocols to kind of migrate uh, over here? So I, I even I was really just talking about within Arbitrum that you have kind of a lot of the Ethereum ecosystem deploying in Arbitrum and there's gonna gonna be, you know. <laughs> the the same the same fights that have played out or not, I shouldn't say fights even but the same kind of friendly competition that's that's played out on uh, on Ethereum I, you know I would expect to you know also very similarly play out on Arbitrum that fundamentally that's the place where kind of the users are going to want to be the liquidity providers are going to want to be it's going to be cheaper it's going to have fast transactions and the DApps are, are already planning on being there and so kind of getting getting a strong hold on that landscape is going to be very valuable. For, for the dApps that are deploying there. I hope people are ready for layer two vampire attacks. <laughs> it sounds like that's what the prediction is. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Uh, so, so guys, uh, I the, the Chainlink army will have my head if I don't ask about Chainlink. And I do know some, that there's something intrinsic about the relationship between Arbitrum and, and Chainlink that I'm unfamiliar with. Can Maybe you guys can explain, like I'm five, the relationship between Chainlink and Arbitrum and why the, the, why the Link army is so excited about this. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, they, you, you've done them a favor because I, I keep seeing my Twitter notifications begging me to uh, to speak about this. And we've done it before, but, but here goes. Uh, 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 yeah, so well, I'll, first be, I'll speak about the history of our teams. Um, I, I did my PhD at Princeton, as you mentioned, but I also did a postdoc at Cornell, and I was uh, fortunate to be advised by Ari Jules, who uh, is a Chainlink um, chief scientist and uh, advisor. I currently, they're a chief scientist uh, while he's on leave uh, for the year, but also uh, uh, you know, a, a longtime advisor and really just an amazing person to work with. And, um, and Chainlink is, is so fortunate to, to have him. And, um, so that's like the initial tie of our teams to Chainlink and, and through that, you know, through, you know, and over time and events, I got to know Sergey as well, uh, as, as did my co-founders and the rest of our team. And, um, I would say that, uh, both the Chainlink team, as well as the Chainlink community really were like uh, early, early, early believers in us. Uh, the Chainlink community uh, on Twitter has been, has been really uh, fantastic. And um, you know, now we're sort of uh, many, many other people are aware of us as well. But if you go back to like, uh, go back a year or two and like, you know, look who's retweeting our tweets and it's like, it's like all Chainlink folks. And, and it was, it was, it was encouraging. And, you know, when they're super, they're, they're a super uh, valuable part of our community and, and we really 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 value them uh very very much uh in terms of the, the technical integrations uh and how we kind of working with Chainlink, so um there, there are lots of uh collaborations that we're working on or exploring some deeper than others and, and I'll, I'll i'll give them uh um, i'll give you some some insight there and number one is the most basic uh cha chain link price fees on arbitrum and uh with the fees lower uh the demand for these fees it, it for these feeds with the fees lower the demand for these feeds <laughs> is going to be higher so uh, I expect to see lots of them on Arbitrum, and I know um, you know this is one of mentioned before how we built how how do we get to the point we open up the users? You know, Chainlink has to be on the ground floor, right? This is one of those pieces of infrastructure that so many teams want, and so many teams are 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 relying on. So so um, you know they're 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 a critical piece of infrastructure. Um, there's also something else, uh, and this gets I don't want to open up another can can of worms here, but it sort of needs to be said to answer your question. 
There's this, all, there's this question about MEV, um, transaction ordering, and how that works on layer two. So uh, when I was at Cornell Tech uh, working with Ari, I had the privilege to work with Phil and Ari. Uh, I was a co-author on the initial MEV paper. And uh, together Wait, with- Wait, uh, the Flash Boys paper? We just yes. had Phil on, so mm -hmm. I ask. Yes, Didn't yes. know that. Wow. That's yes. cool. Uh, I was uh, I, I co-authored that paper, and primarily Phil's work, uh, but I was a, a co-author with Ari and Phil and some others. And uh, and then Ari and I and a few others, led by a, a really uh, great student uh, at Cornell, Mahimna Kalkar, um, worked on another line of work called fair uh, um, fair 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 ordering consensus, right? Consensus systems that that um, uh, guarantee fair ordering. And and um, you know, there's lots of I'm not going to wade into these debates now. There's lots going. On. You might have seen Ari had an op-ed and Phil responded. And you know, my thinking is 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 along the lines of you know I, I tend to agree with with this uh, notion of. As much as we can, we should design protocols that don't have MEV or don't increase don't increase MEV. To the extent that MEV is there, I think flat, you know, flashbots is awesome. We should democratize it, like for sure, but we should also try to minimize it as much as possible. So um, how do you do that in an L2, in a layer two? So I don't want to lose lose users here, but just to say, uh, so Ari and I and, and some others wrote uh, our, I co-authored this paper uh, led by Mahimna on fair ordering, and Ari's building that out at Chainlink this year. And there's definitely a use of, of, of this service in Arbitrum to decentralize the sequencer, to make a, the sequencer is the one in the layer two, the one in Arbitrum that gets to choose the transaction ordering. Right now we're running it and we won't reorder transactions, but to get it to a good guarantee, uh, you need a system, a system like this. So there's definitely points of collaboration that we're exploring there as well on how to introduce this, this really new technology. You know, it was an academic paper last year um, and they're, they're, they're really building it out. And, and how do we introduce that? Uh, you know, this is not finalized yet by any means, but I think there's, there, there, that's a, another collaboration point uh, there. Okay. So Stephen, since you brought it up, we got to talk MEV for just a second. All right. Cause just cause like two weeks ago, we had an MEV episode that came out with Phil and, and some others. And we talked about MEV is kind of like, we're just squeezing the balloon. Now we're squeezing the balloon and like the MEV problem is, is on uh, roll-up chains. Um, so I, I want to ask you this question. So like there is this role, this task, kind of a, like a sequencer in the roll-up chain, as you said, and Arbitrum might operate that. My understanding is like, and this might be uh, a, a distinction with optimism versus Arbitrum, which I'm curious about because um, as I understand it, optimism might be trying to sort of auction off the value of MEV. And if anyone listened to the MEV episode, they know MEV is super valuable, but you're talking here about potentially decentralizing the sequencing function, not to get super geeky. Like we don't, we don't <laughs> want to get super geeky, but like, what is kind of your take on MEV and Arbitrum's take for, on MEV versus maybe optimism? Because I think they're different. Yeah, they're, they're quite different. And this is, you know, a, not one of the differences that people like to focus on, but this is a, a pretty critical core, core difference in our vision. So, uh, to my understanding, the last I've seen, uh, you know, uh, of, the, of their writings and their thoughts on this is just like you said, they plan to auction off MEVA or MEV auction auction off the right to um, to uh, collect this MEV. We view that as a bad thing because um, that increases MEV, right? So the question is, who, who's who's the sequencer? So. Uh, you want to, if you want a benevolent party, and again, this is differences and whether MEV is good or bad, we think that you should try to limit MEV. But if you auction it off, fundamentally, if there's a million dollars of MEV to be collected, uh, and there's someone in the world that's willing to collect that, then they'll pay $999,000 for the right to do that. And you can basically guarantee that the maximal MEV will be extracted um, if, if you auction it off, right? Because I, as a person who don't want to extract an MEV, simply can't compete with the person who will. I'll lose the auction unless I'm operating at a loss. Um, so, so that will basically, in, in my view, not only 
um, it actually makes MEV worse than 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 Ethereum Layer One because in Ethereum Layer One it's sort of uh, a miner can control MEV for a single block. In Layer Two, the sequencer can control MEV across multiple blocks. Also, a miner doesn't even know that it, it will have the ability. If this block's mined, then it gets this right for this one block. Whereas a sequencer can win the auction, and then it gets, you know, I don't know, I've, I've seen them talk about 10-minute periods or, or who knows, but significant periods, maybe even longer, where the sequencer can go ahead and basically um, just reorder transactions within that period. And we view it's that as- God mode. We talked about that. It's, it's like God mode. Yeah, and we view that as dangerous. So the way that we want to do this is we say, hey, right now we're running the sequencer and you got to trust us on this, which is not something we want to do long term, but we're not going to reorder transactions. We're just we're not looking at contents of the transactions. We're just going to post them. But we don't want you to have to trust us long term. We also don't want to incentivize MEV extraction to the point where like, you know, people are auctioning, paying for the right to get every last dollar out of it. So how do, what do we do? We use a fair sequencing where we distribute um, the sequencer or not. So it's not, it's not just us running the sequencer. It's many people running the sequencer, including potentially Chainlink, Oracle, Chainlink nodes you know, as, as part of this coalition. Uh, and, and the idea is that as long as the consensus uh, um, uh, property holds up, they won't be able to reorder transactions. Traditional consensus algorithms care about one thing, agreement. So if we agree on the order and it's the exact opposite of the fair order, it's the exact opposite of the order they came in, traditional consensus is satisfied. We've agreed on an order. We can produce a block. Everyone agrees that's the block. Doesn't really care about ordering. Is this fair? Did we leave something out? Doesn't, did we reorder? Doesn't matter. Uh, the innovation of the paper that I mentioned, uh, with, uh, our, our second paper was designing a, a consensus system that um, can reorder uh, transaction, reorder, that, that can guarantee fairness that, that um, if enough of the nodes are honest, you won't be able to reorder, to reorder transactions. And just so we don't confuse users, we're still using Ethereum consensus. We're talking about replacing the sequencer with this uh, with this thing just, just for ordering. And the fallback case, the worst case is, so the, I've heard the argument, oh, this, this might not work. It might, the worst case is that it just falls back to to maximal to maximal reordering if if, if 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 this consensus doesn't work. But the best case, and the case that I think is, if you get enough parties in this decentralized sequencer, um, you'll have a, a situation in which you really can't reorder transactions, and, and MVP is is all but eliminated basically on, on the layer two. Super cool, guys. I'm so glad you guys are thinking about this. And like the thought going through my head is, wow, these guys are smart. I'm glad they are working for a decentralized money system. I'm glad they're in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, super cool. All right. Well, we got to talk about like uh, future predictions. So it seems to be the case that uh, we've seen experiments like Binance Smart Chain. We've seen experiments like Polygon. EVM with some empty blocks, that is called product market fit. Once you add the right DeFi apps, the DeFi apps are coming to Arbitrum, they're coming to other roll-up solutions. How fast do you think this is gonna play out now? Remember the intro context here is like, we've been waiting so long for Ethereum scalability in layer two. Um, what's the total locked value gonna be like? What's the liquidity going to be like? Take us through three months from now and then maybe a year from now. You want to start? Steven? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll start. And yeah, that, that's a good. Yeah. So the answer is, of course, I don't know, but I'll play this game, uh, you know, and, and take some guesses. I think it's, it's going very to be much a game. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like let's start with three months from now, because, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that three months from now we'll be live and open for users with significant liquidity, um, you know, with quite some with quite some time for quite some time um, that I can say with, you know, um, everything I mentioned before about who goes first, you know, three months from now is, is for sure, you know, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be, you know, the doors will be open and the doors will be, uh, you know, um, well-oiled already. You know, people have gone in and people will have already had enough time to go out with that seven day period. Um, so um, fundamentally, I think we're going to see a lot of, a lot of value lock uh, um, very quickly. Um, I think, you know, like I said, this is the beginning. Um, um, 
I think we we might start seeing um, some of the limits of, of of really like you know congestion in our system, and we're gonna have to work on you know increasing the performance and and getting the you know the the cost down because you know, right now we can run several Ethereum's worth. Um, and we're, we're, we're keeping that, you know, pretty, um, we're keeping the speed limit pretty conservative, um, as Harry mentioned, because of state growth, but I think we're gonna have to confront these issues quickly and say, Hey, how fast, uh, you know, how fast do we get to that world that Harry mentioned? We have multiple roll-up chains. Uh, I, I, you know, a week ago, I would have told you, you know, we're at least one to two years away, but, um, you know, I think it might actually come, come sooner. I don't think that's three months. I don't think it's six months, but uh, I think in a year from now, we'll be thinking about, Hey, maybe we separate and have the NFT chain and the DeFi chain or whatever new uh, vertical comes up because the idea is, Hey, if I'm a DeFi project, right. And I don't really need to um, synchronously compose with the NFT projects. Some of them do, but if I don't need to, why am I paying for their stake growth? So let's uh, sort of, you know, shard in some sense, you have to be a multiple chain. So I think that's my prediction that will come sooner than later. I, I do think, uh, you know, this year we'll see billions of dollars locked in in in, uh, in, in a roll-up uh, chain, which I think will be uh, Arbitrum One, and um, and I think we'll see um, a massive, massive uh, onslaught of users. Right, users will just be coming and for the first time, and we're also going to think about how, how do we how do we cater to these new class of users, right? We love EVM, um, but fundamentally, you know, the the main reason why we're using EVM, you know, people argue all the time, hey. This thing is better than EVM. As, as it, maybe it is, but all the developer all the developer interest now is in EVM. That's what the developers know. That's what they use. So you might have a system that's better, but no one knows how to use that. So step number one is getting EVM the full EVM compatibility. Step number two and three is saying, how can we, can we go beyond that? Even can we get other can we can we cater to a larger class of developers that, that are that are entering the system for the first time and have traditional uh, language skills? And that's something which we're going to be thinking about uh, on Arbitrum as well. Um, but I think. Uh, yeah, sort of just rambling. I don't know. Those are some some predictions that will come super sooner. good. Harry, <laughs> what would you add to those predictions? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, I'm I'm pretty on board with that. I mean, I think the the one like kind of prediction that I would add to this is I think that like we're gonna I think we're gonna see the number of of Ethereum users grow a lot. That kind of one of the that that rollups solve a number of different problems, but the one that at this point I'm kind of most excited about isn't even lower fees, it's faster transactions. Having made a lot of Ethereum transactions on Friday <laughs> when deploying a system and like staring at Etherscan and refreshing for long yeah. periods of time, the, <laughs> the, you know, Ethereum is awesome, but it's not exactly like the best user experience ever. And, and you know, I think it's, you know, daunting to a lot of users that like haven't really kind of it, you know, once you get, once you truly understand the value, it's totally worth it. But until that point, and without the ability to really kind of dip your toes in the water and get a feel for it, there are a lot of users who are just being kind of pushed away right now by by the fees, by the slowness, and and kind of it's going to be a huge opportunity. So I think like total value locked and total value locked has obviously been going up all over the ecosystem massively. But the thing that hasn't been going up that much is user count. And so I think one of the really interesting things we're going to see is a lot of new users coming into the ecosystem, uh, which to me is so exciting and, you know, a, a big a big part of getting to that bankless world. Bankless Nation is about to grow, I think. I've got a suspicion this is going to be Layer 2 summer as well. David, you feeling like it's Layer 2 summer after this conversation? Oh, it's it's around the corner. I already got my uh, my beach hat and beach towel ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm just feeling I'm like... literally the, the moving Ron... to California because I want DeFi summer. <laughs> it, it's happening. Like, it's <laughs> happening, guys. Not the beach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
guys uh super exciting stuff um man thanks for working mm -hmm. on this for as long as you have i know a lot of hard problems needed to be solved to to get to this point uh you know it, it does feel like we we have some of the smartest folks in the world engaged mm -hmm. on helping to create a bankless money system and get it ready for the billions uh, and trillions of value and the millions and hundreds of millions of people who want to go bankless. So thank you for spending some time with us and for your contribution on these tough problems. Yeah, thanks for having us and for all the amazing work you do and helping building out that nation and uh, really, really great to be here. Gosh, yeah, it's a lot of work ahead, a lot of education work ahead. Hey, can I can I ask? So, if a developer wants to start building rides in the Arbitrum One theme park, what what should they do, and where can folks find out more about Arbitrum in general? Sure. So, um, if a developer wants access uh, in our when Arbitrum post, we had a uh, a link. They can come to our Discord, and we'll share it as well for a, for a Google Drive form, and they should sign up. Again, we're onboarding teams. Uh, um, for those that sign up now, it might take a, you know a, a few days or you know us to get them on board. Um, you know, I can't, uh, but uh, they should sign up, and we will we will we will accommodate them and get them in the system. And uh, to learn more about Arbitrum, uh, my favorite resource is uh, you can find it in develop in our developer docs, which is developer.offchainlabs.com. It's called Inside Arbitrum. It's a really deep dive uh, into Arbitrum that's I think pretty accessible. Uh, and also just join our join our Discord, join our community. Um, you know, we're happy to answer questions, and we have a, a vibrant community of, uh, that, that will answer questions as well. And really, um, you know, uh, get involved. And and if you really really want to get involved in Arbitrum, hey, fill fill out an application, DM me. We are hiring for every position. It's all that. <laughs> so I actually have one last question that I want to get to before we completely sign off here, because I, I was about to thank you guys for just con contributing just really important knowledge into the public domain as perhaps free open source software developers, but I actually don't know if that's true. And so that leads me into the question, is Arbitrum kind of, how does Arbitrum view itself as like a open source software development team or as like a commercial uh, commercial team that is looking to have like a business model? Uh, where does this conversation go? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a really, uh, really great, great question. And, you know, fundamentally, I think um, our, our, we really view ourselves as part of the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, you know, like I said, this is the beginning. So, um, you know, funding ourselves and making sure that we continue to remain funding funded is, is important. You know, and this is a kind of something I realized early on. Some people shy away from having a business model in this space, but when I speak to teams, sometimes and some of the most sophisticated teams, the first question they have is, "How do you make money?" And I mm -hmm. say, and they say, "And it's because I want you to make money because I need to make sure you're going to be here and this thing doesn't go away." So, you know, like I said, uh, the L2 fees are are, are are something that's important and something that um, you know it's, it's for L2 operators generally. But you know, we're part of that. We're operating the sequencer and we're and we're developing the protocol. So I think um, there definitely is a business model there. Uh, I think over time we'd like to you know like to basically disappear. Um, you know, as the technology, the, I, I love to see Arbitrum become an open source project right now. It needs a central team, a central team pushing it. Um, my dream would be that like, um, you know, I can go on vacation and like, there's just like a, uh, haven't done that in a few years, but there's just a, um, there's just a, uh, you know, a, a team, uh, you know, an open source community, right. If we had like, uh, you know, the, the guest team or whatever, pick up the, the Arbitrum node, that would be like my absolute dream. And, um, but there's also the other thing I should mention is another thing of this bankless nation. Um, something that all people might not know is we see all this like enterprise money flowing into Bitcoin now. It's like the big story and flowing into potentially Ethereum as well. But what, what, what I see and talking to teams all day long, it's not only the DeFi teams I'm talking about, it's the Fortune 500 companies that are reaching out. And they're also like, how do we get into Ethereum? Right. So, whereas the, the money's flowing into Bitcoin uh, and other assets, 
the enterprise engineering, lots of it is flowing into Ethereum. And I think you're going to see, uh, and I, I know you're going to see, um, lots of, uh, um, of big, big, big companies move into and offer services on Ethereum as well. And, um, and so, you know, th these are things, these are models where, you know, th these companies like to have support teams and teams that they, that they, that they work, that they work with, you know, uh, sort of more enterprisey. So and we view ourselves as, as pretty ETH native, um, you know, hoping to become an open source project, but I do think that there will also be an enterprise story to this as well. Again, bringing them into the Ethereum ecosystem, not as a separate offering, not as becoming, you know, a, a hyperledger, but really bringing them into you know, the Ethereum ecosystem. No offense to Hyperledger. <laughs> and that's and that's probably going to be like the for, the first place we see sort of more Arbitrum chains, is because that's kind of like the that that's kind of the the first the question with more Arbitrum chains is always like who wants to have a fiefdom, um, and, and that's kind of like and that and the answer is the first people to want a fiefdom are going to want are going to be sort of the the you know the. The, corporate, the companies that kind of want to have sort of that 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 landscape to themselves mm -hmm. and, and kind of then invite people in as opposed to kind of this like very shared landscape, which is the Arbitrum one chain. Awesome. And it makes a lot of sense also, right? Because, you know, we, we mentioned in the beginning, we have EtherScan supporting us, we have Alchemy supporting us. You know, if I'm just a user that wants to um, uh, spin up my own rollup chain, so there's a lot of work to get to get the support from the infrastructure. You know, Chainlink, Chainlink's not going to support if I, you know, if, if, if random user decides to launch an Arbitrum rollup chain, Chainlink's not going to support that. However, if like Fortune 500 company, um, you know, has uh, supports their chain, they'll be they'll have an, they'll have uh, an easier uh, job getting the infrastructure on board. Which is why I think those will uh, fundamentally, I think, will be community driven long term. But I think some of the next Arbitrum chains you'll see are are um, are really um, some uh, enterprise chains. Well said, guys. This is an open financial system for the world. If you are Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, a big bank, you can get involved by spinning up a roll-up chain. Why not? We just don't want our core protocols, base layers to be corruptible, but you are certainly invited to the party as well. Hey, You just have to swear fealty to Ethereum and Ether. <laughs> but why not spin up a central bank digital currency on something like Rollup? There, there's a really interesting canvas of opportunities in front of us. Stephen, Harry, thank you so much for joining us and exploring this with us. Congrats on the on the launch. We're looking forward to cutting the tape on that theme park and having DeFi users enter soon. Likewise, thanks so much for having us. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Risks and disclaimers, of course. ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. Those rides we were talking about, DeFi, they're risky as well. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on Bankless. <laughs>